now. Get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk650andkste.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Well, happy Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UZ Cooperative Extension Lifetime Master Gardener, garden columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com, all the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at Twitter.com slash Farmer Fred, daily garden tips, lots of snark. The Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page where there is always a garden dialogue going on. And uh, this past week, brought out a huge response to my query of you, the listener and the follower of the Facebook page. What are your biggest weed problems? What weeds really bug you? What are the toughest weeds you have to control? Many, 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 many responses. Uh, We've made a top five list of the top five weeds among you. And uh, we're going to offer some control tips, too. I hope they work. But uh, the reason they're top five weeds is they're difficult to control. Guess who's here? Debbie Arrington is here. Oh, I almost named the paper that shall remain nameless. <laughs> uh, garden writer, now with her own Facebook and blog page and soon website, Sack Digs Gardening. Sacramento Digs Gardening. And yes, you can... Sack Digs Gardening is going to be the website. Uh, right now, you can find us on Facebook at Sacramento Digs Gardening. Okay. Or also, we have a blogspot page, which is sacdigsgardening.blogspot.com. I will be posting those on Twitter and Facebook later. Very good. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, it's uh, important that we keep gardening local. And, yes. And cover the issues facing gardeners here because, as that guy on the radio is too fond of saying, it's all gardening is local. Yes. And it really is. Yes, it is. I mean, I don't care what you can grow in Baltimore. No, <laughs> really no. And, and plant diseases that you have on the East Coast <laughs> that are covered by the Washington Post aren't applicable to yeah. Sacramento. So we, we have our own issues. And because it's the 21st century, it, it, as things change, it's just the digital world now. It's online, yeah. it's free, it's accessible, and it's going to have a lot of stuff on it. Good. All right. I'm looking forward to that. J- just started on Friday, so we're building it one day at a time. But, All right. You know, it is going to be a resource for our community, we hope. I want to talk to you about a podcast. Yes. Too. Yes. All right. Okay. That'd be great. All right. The, uh, so anyway, we're going to be talking about the weeds that you find most troublesome. If you have a garden question, give us a call. 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Email, send it to fred at farmerfred.com. And uh, Terry's running the board today. Hi, Terry. He'll be uh, going crazy during the Garden Grappler at 11 o'clock as uh, we give stuff away. Debbie Arrington will be the judge for the Garden Grappler. Clue available at both the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page and at uh, farmerfred.com. So you can... Uh, It'll be about butterfly gardening, because we're going to talk about that this hour. So if you're listening with half an ear, you might just get a few answers in your own brain uh, before the garden grappler. So we'll be doing that a little bit later. But let's uh, talk some more, Debbie, about uh, the five most vexatious weeds for gardeners uh, who responded at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. And I I really can't say that it's local, because there were people uh, chiming in from as far away as Mississippi about and in a lot of situations it's the same weeds yes that we have so it's not uncommon we talked about field bindweed and how difficult that is con- to control nutgrass or nut sedge Ooh, yeah now that has long been the number one weed in sacramento yeah especially among rose gardeners because it's one 
that it's almost impossible to eradicate. Uh, people always say, well, if you've got it, you have to dig up the entire garden and start over again. Uh, the, the problem with nutsedge is that it has different ways to replicate itself. So it can, you know, it can spread by seed. It can spread by the little nuts mm-hmm. that are the rhizomes uh, that grow underneath the soil. Um, and it is uh, a thug. It just wants to take <laughs> over. Um, and it can survive all sorts of things from, from drought to flood. What I find amazing is it can even penetrate the cheaper weed cloths. Yes. If you put down landscape fabric thinking, okay, I'll give it full shade so it can't grow, it has such a sharp point that unless that landscape fabric has been treated or constructed in such a way that it's resistant to it, the nutgrass can penetrate right through it. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. I like what UCIPM says for avoiding nutsedge. It says the best approach for avoiding nutsedge problems is to prevent establishment of the weed in the first place. Thank you very much, UCIPM. We appreciate that. We didn't see those nutlets in that container plant we bought. Don't let it get started, yes. Yeah. Well, the thing about nutsedge is it looks like a little mini papyrus plant. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually a rather attractive little plant. And it has yeah. a, this bright, you know, these thick green, bright leaves. Somewhere it. it's probably yeah. an ornamental grass. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's that's probably how it got all over the place is that it was ornamental. And it it makes people so mad they reach right down and they pluck it out of the ground. And that's probably the worst thing you can do. Yes. Because what you've just done is you freed all those nutlets that are down below the ground level. And now where you pulled out one plant, you're going to have five or six plants popping up. So I think the whole idea for digging it out is to do just that. Dig it out. Don't pull it. Dig it. Dig the whole thing. Yeah. And get below that. Yes. Yeah, you have to actually get down there with the with the trowel and get underneath it and scoop the whole thing out. Yes. Uh, although it says that the UCIPM page says continually removing shoots eventually depletes the energy reserves in the tuber because the nuts edge will have to use 60 percent of its reserves to develop the first plant and 20 percent for the second. So it becomes an endurance contest between you and the weed. The weed will win. <laughs> it usually does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see here. The best way to remove small plants. Why does it say the best way to remove small plants is to pull them up by hand or to hand hoe? No. <laughs> Wait a minute. Am I reading nuts edge here? Yeah, I am. No, you dig below it. Why would you pull it out? What am I doing here? What did, did somebody change reality on me all of a sudden? Uh, no, no, dig it out. I don't care what they say. If you pull it out, you're going to leave the nutlets behind. All right, and and now the scientists at UC will be coming for my head, so to speak. I don't understand that. All right, anyway, uh, the best approach for again for avoiding nuts edge problems is don't bring it home. All right, uh, cultural control. If you can limit production of tubers, you will eventually control the nuts edge itself. To limit tuber production, remove small nuts edge plants before they have five to six leaves. In summer, this is about every two to three weeks. Up to this stage, the plant hasn't formed new tubers yet. Now, you know, right above, it talked about handpicking them as good control. Then it says, remove as much of the plant as possible will force the tuber to produce a new plant, drawing its energy reserve from tuber production to the production of new leaves. Uh, no, I don't, I don't care what you say. Dig it out. Just get down below the tuber. Bring up the whole plant and the soil with it, too. Don't shake out. The soil. When you bring up that little ball of soil that's around a nut sedge or a nut grass plant, if you shake it out, some of those nutlets, those tubers will 
break free, and then you're going to have the problem all over again. So pull it, pulling it, dig it out, okay? The, the chemicals that are available for nuts edge control, there aren't too many. Uh, the problems with non-selective post-emergent herbicides such as glyphosate, I think has to do with the waxy leaf surface. It just tends to run right off. So glyphosate doesn't really work that well on it. And uh, I, I still think that the best control is digging it out. There are some post-emergent herbicides specifically made for nutgrass. Monterey Products has a product called Nutgrass Nylator, uh, which, but then you have to be very careful on how you apply it. Well, what are the active ingredients in those nutsedge killers? Oh, what do we got here? We got, you just want me to tongue twist these words here, diclobenil, diclobenil, dimethapid P, uh, halosulfuron, metachlor, metalachlor, penoxacillum, sulfursulfuron, trifoxysulfuron sodium. <laughs> there, you happy? Well, I, well, I was wondering if it was a glyphosate like like Roundup or, or something else. Well, you know, glyphosate is on this list too. Yeah, yeah, and the because I uh, in discussions of of nut sedge in the past, uh, some readers had gotten on my case like, why don't you just use nut sedge killer? Uh, you know, from Ortho or Monterey or one, right, one of yeah. those. Yeah, and, but the problem with those sort of herbicides is quite often it might kill that plant, but it will have bad effects on other neighboring plants that you don't intend to harm. Exactly, and even in the UCIPM literature, they point out that no pre-emergent herbicides that effectively control nutsedge can be used on turf grass, for example, yeah. but you can use them on selected ornamental plants. Read the label directions to see which ornamentals will tolerate each herbicide and follow all label directions regarding how to apply the product. Because most of the ornamental plants that we have won't tolerate exposure to those, well, especially right. ones that you really like, like roses. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. When we, we have to take a break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about glyphosate and roses. Yes. All right. Because glyphosate is a very popular non-selective weed killer for a lot of uh, mm -hmm. weeds in our area, but it can have deleterious effects on some of your most desirable oh, ornamentals. Yeah. Yes. Debbie Arrington is here. We'll, we'll answer your garden questions as well at 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255 as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE and KSTE.com. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. With Debbie Arrington, consulting rosarian, garden writer, uh, proprietor of the Facebook page Sacramento Digs Gardening. Check it out. We're talking about the top five weeds according to your answers at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. And the top five, uh, we talked about field bindweed over on uh, the KFBK gar Garden Show and uh, the number two most of vexatious weeds, according to you, nutgrass or nutsedge. Interesting to note that the UCIPM site says few herbicides are effective at controlling nutsedge, either because of a lack of selectivity to other plants or a lack of uptake. And uh, for the few herbicides that are suitable, it says apply them when they'll be most effective. But most herbicides aren't effective against the tubers. So basically all you're talking about is a top kill with mm -hmm. chemicals, and that goes back to digging out the entire plant. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the products that they mention for 
<laughs> I, I love this. They have a table here uh, at the UCIPM chart. It says controlling nuts edge with chemicals. Then below that, in parentheses, it says none of these products effectively controls mature plants. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so n- never mind. But uh, But on this list is glyphosate also known as Roundup, although you can find glyphosate as the active ingredient in other label products that oh, may be a many. heck of a lot cheaper yeah. than the actual Roundup. Many now. Yeah. But it is a non-selective herbicide, and uh, whether it provides control or not may be to the detriment of your other plants due to uh, herbicide drift. Yes. And what, what happens, and roses are thin-skinned plants. Oh, yes. What and, happens when roses meet Roundup? Oh, bad, yeah. bad stuff. Um, it. Roses have a, a extreme sensitivity to Roundup, and it what Roundup does how 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 glyphosate works is that it destroys well it it, it inhibits the the growth of uh, and assimilation of proteins at the growth points of the plant so at the tip of the roots and at the at the growing shoots where the the flowers are coming out and 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 at the tips um, and it basically scrambles them. So they have very distorted, weird growth. In roses, um, it looks a lot like a rose disease called rose rosette, uh, which is known as witch's broom, where the, the rose, instead of growing into a nice bud with nice, nicely shaped leaves, they're tiny and distorted and twisted and look um, just really screwy, and, and, yeah. but very, very small and... Um, deformed. Um, and fortunately in California, we don't have rose rosette disease. You know, it, it's a, a terrible virus, which is incurable and it's spread by a little mite and it's all over the Midwest and the East Coast. Out here, we don't have it. But people will go online and they'll see a picture of, of witch's broom and say, oh, that's what I have in my roses. But when, you know, it is 99.9% Roundup exposure. Yeah, when you see all that distortion on a rose bush and, and for a lot of other thin skin plants as well, and if you have been spraying Roundup in the area on nearby weeds, or if your neighbor has been spraying it, there's a good chance the drift uh, could adversely affect many plants. And what it looks like is what you described. It's just like a witch's broom. It's yeah. uh, distorted. And that's uh, usually when somebody shows me a picture of a rose that looks like that, so the first question I ask is, have you been spraying any uh, weed killer in the area? And, and it doesn't even have to be you spraying it. It can be somebody right. else spraying mm-hmm. it. And it can travel many yards uh, in, the, in it because it doesn't take much exposure for, for it to totally disrupt a rose's system. And it will take, if you're lucky, about three years for that distorted growth to be overcome by that bush where it can replace and and get rid of that growth, you know, because the only way you can get rid of it is cut it off, but then it has to grow back new growth. And if that, if that glyphosate is still in its system, when it's trying to grow, because it's a growth inhibitor, it causes all this distorted growth. So it, it takes about three years for the rose to recover, if it will recover at all. Then people might make the mistake, too, of spraying the weeds in their yard in the wintertime when the roses don't have leaves. And they think, well, Roundup works by working through the leaves. It's absorbed by the leaves and then kills the plant that way. But my roses don't have any leaves, so it's okay to spray beneath my roses with Roundup to kill the weeds. When in reality, it's the skin, the thin skin of the bark of the rose that the Roundup can penetrate, even in the dead of winter. Yes. Yeah. So... Take precautions. One precaution some people take would be to 
carry along a big piece of cardboard with them and put that between what you're spraying and uh, the rose bush. Well, if you're going to be spraying around roses, it's recommended to to cover them, to bag your roses, basically, mm-hmm. you know, plastic wrap them, you know, and then hand paint the weed killer on the weeds right. to not spray it at all but to, to paint it with a paintbrush. And if you look very carefully at uh, your favorite local well-stocked nursery or home supply store, you're going to find some sponge applicator Roundup utensils, if you will, glyphosate uh, devices. One is as simple as a tube with a sponge on the end, mm-hmm. and you basically fill that tube, which is three feet long, like it's almost like a half-inch PVC pipe, and fill it with uh, the diluted uh, glyphosate product, and then it gets absorbed by the sponge at the end, and you just dab that on the weeds to kill them. Yeah, it keeps it out of the air. A lot of people, though, do not bother to read the full 60-page manual that comes with uh, a, the big bottle of Roundup Concentrate, and that has a lot of good information about the correct way to apply it. You don't apply it on a windy day. You don't apply it when the temperature is below, I think it's 50 or 55 degrees, nor do you apply it when the temperature is above 90. Mm-hmm. And uh, definitely not when uh, it's raining. Mm -hmm. And you don't turn your sprinklers on afterwards Mm -hmm. either. No. So read and follow all label directions, I think, is what we're boiling down Mm -hmm. to. And good luck. But as it says here, uh, as far as using glyphosate um, and uh, nutgrass, uh, it says, uh, unfortunately, many people mistakenly use glyphosate on full-grown nutgrass plants to try to kill the tubers. Unfortunately, when tubers are mature, the herbicide usually doesn't move from the leaves to the tubers, leaving them unaffected. Instead, apply glyphosate when the plants are young, actively growing, and haven't recently been mowed or cut. And a lot of people think that, well, I've heard about when you know trying to kill a stump, you cut it off fresh and then paint that fresh wound to get the glyphosate to work. And this is just the opposite. You don't want to cut the plant. So take that into consideration, too. Read this uh, page at UCIPM on uh, nutgrass control, and you're going to learn a lot. Well, the thing with glyphosate is it goes to the growth points of the plant. So if it's not growing, it's not going to go to those points. So that's why it doesn't go down to the sedge, to the nuts, excuse me, in the the sedge. It stays there. Yeah. And this is why, for many people, nutgrass is their number one issue, nuts hedge. All right. All right, let's go to the phones, answer a question or two here. Lorraine in Napa, thanks for holding, and uh, good morning. Good morning. How's Um, life in your private jet? I was calling because we have a problem with horse flies, and I think I was listening to your show a couple months ago, and there was a mention of putting out a water solution where the horse flies would come and lay their eggs, and then they would not be able to produce. Do you were you the person I was listening to last time? Probably not. His, his name I, I can't see Bob Tanum talking about horse flies though, but I, I, mean, I guess it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had called and said they had a lot of gnats, and he said, "Oh, when you have that, it doesn't come from the weeds; it actually comes from this." And this is a way to control the gnats and also horse flies. So it was kind of on a side note. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of. Uh, horsefly controls that are available as far as some sort of traps to get them when they're young. Uh, I know my neighbors when I lived in Harold had a lot of the horsefly issues and were controlling them uh, with some something they've found a tractor supply company. I know that doesn't that doesn't help you at all, but I, I'm at a loss for this. I mean, there are some good things on the uh, UC Davis Veterinary Medicine site about horseflies that you may want to read into and uh, see if that might help. Okay. But sorry, sorry, I couldn't be a more help there. 
Unless okay, thank you. Are, okay, bye-bye. Are horse flies and stable flies the same thing? They're not. Okay. Don't shake your head, Debbie. It's radio. <laughs> it's on the radio, yes. Uh, no, I think they're different flies. Okay, because there are some stable fly controls. Uh-huh. Uh, well, we got 30 seconds here. Uh, horses. We have. Oh, a hor- yes. We have a horse that's won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. Yes, and Justify yeah. is his name, and he has a very, very good chance of winning the Belmont. It looks, which is going to be next Saturday in New York. Uh, he is attempting to become the 13th Triple Crown winner. Um, he has the right trainer. Is Bob Baffert, who won with American Pharaoh in 2015. It was the first Triple Crown winner in since 37. Secretariat? No, 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 no. Since affirmed in 78. Oh, sorry. Uh, this is uh, in 37 years. So this is the 40th anniversary of affirmed. Oh. Uh, and I actually was at Belmont and saw affirmed. Uh, win the Triple Crown over all they are. So? Yeah, yeah. So You got time? Are you going back to New York? No, actually, I'm going to go to Reno. Well, it's, um, <laughs> but, well, well, what happened, we, we went back to New York six times since the firm. Yeah. Each time when the Triple Crown was on the line, where a horse had won the Derby and the Preakness, to see another Triple Crown winner, and each time it didn't happen. So when, and the last time we went was with California Chrome in 2014. Mm-hmm. So um, in 2015, when American Pharaoh was on the line, we went to Reno instead and he won. So this time we're going to Reno. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All right. Because uh, obviously. It's, it's, it's superstition. Yes. Yeah. But uh, Justify has an excellent chance. Um, the, the issues with Justify is um, he started his career very late. He started as a three-year-old. He's only had five races lifetime, but he's undefeated. He's yeah. So he's he he started his career in February. You know he's he's very recently. Wow. Yeah. But the reason he started so late is because he's a great big horse. Uh, he's nearly seventeen hands tall. He's huge, and so they gave him plenty of time to grow. Um, and and really, they thought at first that he was going to be a sprinter because he's kind of built like a sprinter. But um, he's, which means he's got a big butt and he's you know he's got a lot of, of muscle on him, uh, which which propels him very quickly out of the gate. Um, but he also has a very, very long stride, and that helps him go a longer distance. Now, the mile-and-a-half distance of the Belmont is always a big question mark. Can they go that far? And also that horse has been asked to do an awful lot in a very short period of time. He won the Santa Anita Derby the first week of April, then the Kentucky Derby first week of May, and the Preakness you know, the third week of May. That's a lot of racing in a very short period of time. Can he keep it going? And the Preakness was under rather adverse oh, gosh, climate, the, too. The, der- the Derby and the Preakness were both mud baths. Yeah. And what was amazing is this California horse is a, is a gray mudder. You know, he's, he has a lot of ability. So an off track is not going to be the issue. The issue is going to be, can he go a mile and a half in a field of 12 where everybody is gunning for him, everybody is going to try to trap him and, and keep him from winning? So can he overcome all of this? So it's it's going to be an interesting race. Um, he definitely has the right connections to do it. Um, it would be astounding to have two Triple Crown winners in yeah. space of three years after a 37-year drought. But the 70s were like that when we had right. had three in just a space of five years. So Who are the three? Uh, Secretary at Seattle Slough and Affirmed. Oh, Seattle Slough. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah 77. So, um, you know, I like Justify a lot. Um you know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed because it would be really great to have another Triple Crown winner. I imagine um, he's the favorite. Oh, he'll, he'll be heavy, heavy favorite. Yeah. Um, the, the main threat seems to be Bravazzo. Uh, Bravazzo is trained by Wayne Lucas, uh, who's uh, a legend around the track. Mm-hmm. Like Baffert, he's a, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. Like Baffert, he also came from quarter horse racing here in California before he went into thoroughbreds. 
Uh, Wayne has won the Belmont before. He's he's had the opportunity to win a Triple Crown, didn't get it done, um, but then also been the spoiler. So we'll see if he can uh, be the spoiler versus Baffert. Next Saturday. Next Saturday, Belmont. Yeah. What's yeah. the weather going to be like in New York? Do we know? Yeah. Oh, it's been raining like okay. crazy back mm-hmm. there. So uh, we don't know for sure. We're keeping our fingers crossed that he finally gets a dry track uh, to run on. Um, when it is uh, sloppy back there, it it can be very, very sloppy. It's a long way to go. Oh, it's a mile and a half, yeah. yeah. But it's also a very fast-draining track. Uh, it's very sandy. You know, they call it the big sandy. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how he does. Um, but, you know, I'm hopeful. He's, right. he's definitely a, a worthy champion. Keep your money in your pocket. <laughs> Just enjoy the race. <laughs> yes. All right. All right, we'll take a short break. When we come back, let's uh, run down the rest of those vexatious weeds. We've talked about... Uh, Field bindweed and nutgrass, there are three more that I'm sure are getting your goat. And maybe goats might be a solution. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that when we come back to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Along with Debbie Arrington, garden writer, consulting Rosarian. And on this segment, we're talking about, whoa, those weeds. The five worst weeds in our area, according to the poll. Unscientific poll, mind you. But a lot of responses at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page for you to name your uh, worst weeds. And uh, we've talked about field bindweed. We've talked about nutgrass and nut sedge. Uh, rounding out the list of the top five, spotted spurge, liquid amber sprouts, and Bermuda grass. But uh, a lot of people have other choices, too, and that's very understandable, such as Sue in Penn Valley. Hi, Sue. Hi. Hi there. I, I have a weed, and I also have a comment for Debbie when we get through. Uh, the oxalis is just driving me nuts. I can't. I think it's like your Bermuda grass. It's forever. It, it kind of is like Bermuda grass in that it's forever. It seems like you can pull it up all you want, and it still keeps coming back. And uh, it's like it takes, according to the folks at UCIPM, it takes a combination of hand weeding and spraying, and maybe even using a pre-emergent to uh, control it. And they use the word control, and control doesn't mean eradication. Yeah, so where I'm at. So the word forever is in there. Come up with something new, but I thought maybe by pulling it, I'm also encouraged because you know, as runners, that I'm encouraging it to branch out more. Uh, Well, they talk about controlling established plants with hand weeding, hand cultivation with hose and weeding tools, along with post-emergent herbicides. And uh, basically, it's trying to control the plants before they flower and set seed. So I think by uh, getting rid of it before it flowers by hand pulling, that's going to work better than waiting yeah, too long. Get out there in the, with my raincoat and umbrella. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> which, which is another thing I wanted to bring up about. Uh, remember a couple of months ago, you're having trouble with the lemons being eaten by something? Yeah, eating the skins of the lemons. That yeah, was so well, weird. I, I've, I've watched it firsthand. I live in an oak forest on 10 acres of oaks, and I have got gazillions of gray squirrels and uh, i actually in fact this is one i won from you my little meyer lemon is out on the deck and uh, i can see it from my from like in my kitchen and they were literally jumping in in the container with the 
and picking the lemons and and eating them. I, but they'd eat about half of them, and then they'd, uh, you know, give up. I guess they're just starving. Uh, they've also, uh, uh, finally what I had to do, they were in there and then digging up on the so- top of the soil there and bringing up all kinds of roots. I had to get get some of that old uh, gutter guard that oh, yeah. kind of stuff, mm-hmm. plastic, and cut it up and lay that down there. And then they still kept jumping up in the, in the uh, tree itself. And it broke one branch, which I taped, and it seems to be growing back together. Finally, in desperation, I put a puppy pen around it, and then I started feeding the squirrels like crazy. I'm going broke buying nuts, but there weren't any. See, there weren't any acorns the year before because of the their wind pollinated, and the time they were pollinating it was raining and blowing like crazy. And this has been two years in a row. There's just no acorns. Oh, really? So, well, then you don't have the problem of the squirrels burying the acorns, and now you're dealing with all these oak sprouts coming up. Well, I don't care about. I don't mind. I mean, I got. I Tim, the tree man, comes every year just to work here. He's an arborist. Um, I, I mean, so. it's a constant problem, and I don't mind that because it's on the. I mean, I don't have. Too many of them buried. That's that's not my problem. Right. I, just, I like the I, I like your idea though of using the puppy pen and putting that over the uh, lemon tree to uh, protect it from the squirrels. Yeah. yeah well, anyway, I just thought I'd let uh, let Debbie know that it's not just wrapped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yes, and yeah, they it, it's all sorts of rodents. We'll yeah. 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 Because our, our lemons also got skinned. Oh, did they? Yeah. yeah. But but with our wires, it was. With a combination of the roof rats and the, the right, squirrels. yeah, yeah they're, they're, both of those. they're finding roof rats in orchards now mm-hmm. uh, that are doing the same thing. Oh no, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah Sue. All right, well, I'll just keep I'll keep trying everything. <laughs> Mother Nature bats last. Yeah, right. All right, Sue. Okay. Thanks for calling. Appreciate okay. it. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is like a show in futility, <laughs> trying to come up with answers i mean there's a reason why for instance the top five weeds are the top five weeds it's because they are so difficult to control yes that's what makes them weeds yeah Yeah. so when we come back let's shift gears and talk about butterfly gardening sure okay we'll do that and then we'll finish off the the control tips for uh, liquid amber spotted spurge and bermuda grass uh, some point between now and 11 30 i imagine so we'll be doing that and answering your garden questions as well as we continue with get growing on talk 650 kste you're listening to get growing with farmer fred talk 650 kste here again fred hoffman along with debbie errington consulting rosarian garden writer with the story of her butterfly garden at the family house down in Long Beach, she was just telling me this off the air, and you basically turned an overgrown, weedy putting green into a butterfly garden. Yes. Now, what was this putting green made of originally? Oh, it was uh, bent grass. Okay, bent yeah, grass. So yeah, a lo- very yeah. low-growing, oh, yeah, very yeah. thirsty plant. Oh, yes. And, uh, and it was a beautiful putting green. But, <laughs> but when the golfer went to the great 19th hole in the sky, yes. that left uh, your aunt to ignore it. Yes. And it became weeds. Yes. Which n- not uncommon. No, yes. And what and happened? lots of it. What did you uh, do? Well, um, when, when I, in- I inherited our family home down in Long Beach, um, and, and 
being in Long Beach, it's different than here in that Long Beach rarely gets into the hundreds, if ever. Right. You know, very so few it, ocean liners here in yes, Sacramento. Yes, it, it's, a, it's a much more temperate climate. Yeah. Um, but the butterfly garden I created there, uh, it's very drought tolerant. Um, I was telling Fred that we had no irrigation for two years in the backyard there uh, with this butterfly garden, and it was getting by with just monthly irrigation and thriving. Um, and the idea behind the butterfly garden was to give lots of different flowers that butterflies would appreciate mm-hmm. and then give them a food source where they could also um, make new butterflies and caterpillars. And Did you have to rip out the bent grass and the weeds first? Oh, no. Uh, well, the weeds I solarized. Okay. So, yeah, so I solarized that first and the bent grass was long gone. Okay. I mean, it was, you know, it was generations ago, so it was gone. So you solarize uh, the area? So I, I solarize okay. the area. Yeah. All right. Okay, with clear plastic in with the summer plastic, time. Yeah. Okay, even though Long Beach doesn't get that warm and No, you get... it was but it was enough to okay. to take care of uh, most of the problems. Despite I, May gray and June gloom. Yeah, I I still got some random grasses come up there, ornamental grasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um very little other weeds. Okay. So solarization, like I was pointing out earlier on the KFPK Garden Show, you have a ready-to-plant garden with healthier soil yes. uh, after you do it. And in this case, uh, you put in what kind of plants to attract the butterflies? I've got lots of lantana, lantana. which they like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, salsify. Salsify. Which, yeah. And it's, it's, it does double duty. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, uh, salsify is oyster plant, so yeah. it's a food plant. Right. Uh, and But it has a big purple... Uh, daisy-like flower, which they like a lot. Um, let's see, what else do I have there? Um, no bodleia. Oh, uh, I've got. I don't have any bodelias down yeah. there, but I've got a lot of lavender. Okay. And they, uh, there's this giant lavender plant um, that I actually planted when I was a brownie. So it's <laughs> it's a really older uh, variety, and uh, there's also a large rosemary down there. Um, and they like rosemary. Well, yeah, they, yeah. the bees and them both. They're yeah. they're on it. Um, that there is also oh cannas I've got uh, canna really? yeah. yeah and I think the cannas actually are attracting bees more mm-hmm. than the butterflies um, but they're all there together I also have a lot of hummers uh, a lot of hummingbirds um, and they're nesting there um, and there's you know flowering shrubs and trees and a lot of roses of course because I've always got roses um, but it's it's the lantana that in particular that they love. And uh, you were talking off the air we were talking about butterfly gardens and what sort of flowers do they like. They like flowers with nectar, number one. Yeah. You know, and not all hybrids have nectar. And they also like flowers that are flat. Because, flat flowers, because butterflies, they can't feed while hovering. Like, like a bee can hover or a hummingbird can hover. But a butterfly has to land on something for it to then put its uh, long tongue down into the flower and get mm-hmm. the nectar. So they like things that look like a little landing platform. Right. Like a daisy or an aster or a lantana. Um, or, or passion flowers, uh, you know, other things that have that sort of flat shape. Uh, one of the more common plants around here that are very attractive to uh, butterflies uh, is yarrow, Achillea. Yes. yes. It has that flat flower. Yes, yes. And, and I've got some of that also. Yeah. Um, it's a, another good plant. And think of anything like in the aster family, the daisy family, anything with a flat flower, uh, the umbels, mm-hmm. uh, the, the sedums. Things like that, they mm-hmm. may like. And, the, and they're, you know, the thing that's nice about those, those are also mostly low water plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we put in, uh, in our revised front yard, we put in a lot of native scabiosa, the, mm-hmm. the pincushion flower. Oh, yes. Yeah, they love that. Yeah, yeah. I, have, I have some of that down there, too. Yeah. One good place, if you want to check out a good butterfly garden, the El Dorado County Master Gardeners have a, a wonderful um, 
garden that they've established at their place. Check out the Butterfly Garden. Uh, if you visit the their website, the Master Gardeners of El Dorado County, just uh, enter that search term along with the term Butterfly Garden, and you're going to get all sorts of great information about the butterfly gardens that they have up there at their demonstration garden that you may want to check out, along with a complete list of plants for uh, butterfly gardens as well. And it's uh, this is a great project that they have there at their uh, demonstration garden. And where is their demonstration garden? Let's find out. It is the Sherwood Demonstration Garden, which is located at Folsom Lake College, the El Dorado chapter at 6699 Campus Drive in Placerville. And they're open uh, Fridays and Saturdays, 9 to noon. And uh, check it out. Yeah, and they, all, they have a lot of other events there as well. The, uh, they also, on their list of plants that are attractive uh, to butterflies, they list a lot of things that uh, you may have forgot about or you think are only attractive to hummingbirds, such as uh, the agastache, mm-hmm. uh, which is also called hummingbird mint which is wonderful. Also some great California natives, too, that butterflies like, uh, Ceanothus. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for a low-water-use garden that attracts butterflies, Ceanothus. And it's not just flowers, too. Uh, sycamores are a major host for swallowtails. Are they? Yes, okay. that's why you see a lot of swallowtails in city parks, because they love the sycamores. And okay. we also have a large sycamore down in Long Beach, too. Uh, and you mentioned lavenders, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of lavenders that uh, are attractive. Bee balm, the Monarda mm-hmm. plants, uh, mm-hmm. the the butterflies like. Penstemons, too. Yes. There's a lot of good penstemons out yeah. there. So uh, check those out. And uh, what else? Oh, weeping willow tree, speaking of trees. Yes. And, of course, uh, many of the salvias, yes. the sage plants uh, that are just uh, fabulous for uh, attracting butterflies. And uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know what we should talk about, too, in, in terms of butterfly and your plants. Uh, they produce caterpillars. Yes. And the caterpillars will eat your plants. Yes. So you have to allow a little damage. Yes. And that in our inaugural blog post at my new blog, Sacramento Digs Gardening, is on that very subject. Uh, because a lot of people love butterflies, but then they freak out when they see something eating their host plants. But the idea of a host plant is that it will be eaten. (laughs) So when you plant milkweed, I mean, the plant will be beautiful. Yes, it will attract butterflies, you hope, particularly monarch butterflies. Um, And if you're lucky, they will eat it. Uh, they're little caterpillars because the idea of a host plant is it allows them a place to lay eggs. And the reason they lay eggs on that host plant is that it's a ready food source for those very hungry, hungry ha- caterpillars as soon as they emerge. So put away the BT, put away the dipel. It's, uh, you don't want to kill those caterpillars. Yeah, well, if the idea of a butterfly garden is, <laughs> yes. is a sanctuary for insects. Yes. Yes. And so you can't use insecticides right. in a butterfly garden, even if you're trying to kill some other type of insect. Don't do it. Okay, because even though the the dipel or the BT is a stomach poison, using other insecticides to control aphids or whiteflies uh, can have a deleterious effect on the entire population. Yes, yeah. yes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, a good ground cover, too, for uh, butterfly attracting is uh, verbena. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. so that's a, a good one to be using. But uh, if you visit that site at, at the El Dorado County Master Gardeners, and you can learn a lot about uh, butterfly gardening, and uh, along with that plant list, too, so you can check that out as well. So there's a lot of good stuff there to keep in mind. Um, the Facebook page that you have, again, let's talk a little bit about that. It is called Sacramento Digs Gardening. Mm-hmm. And what do you envision that becoming? 
Uh, well, Kathy Morrison, uh, my former colleague at a large newspaper here in the Sacramento area. That shall uh, remain nameless. <laughs> uh, we launched on Friday, June 1st, mm-hmm. um, a new Facebook page and a blog. And we also uh, anticipate to have a website up soon. Um, once we get the bugs out of it, that is going to be a place for, so to speak, uh, a place for our gardening, our Sacramento gardening community to share information, get information, share events, share news, um, and have basically a a, a resource that we can use. All right. Check Um, it out on Facebook. Yeah, Sacramento Sacramento Digs Garden. All right. We'll take a short break for news. When we come back, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet. And a clue available at FarmerFred.com. Clue available at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. And if you've been listening this hour, you probably have some answers in your head. As Get Growing continues here on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet if you're up on your butterfly plants. We were just talking about them. I'm hoping this contest goes quickly. Debbie Arrington does too. Yes, well, we gave so many clues away. I'm thinking, this is our Garden Grappler. We've already named at least 10 plants. Well, good. So (laughs) now it's your turn. You name a plant that attracts butterflies. Name a plant that attracts butterflies. All five callers get a prize, special bonus prize for caller five. As you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. So caller five has it toughest of all. The number is to call in, 916-576-1578, 916-576-1578, or toll-free, if there is such a thing anymore, 866-331-8255, 866-331-8255. Name a plant that attracts butterflies. Debbie Arrington, who has a butterfly garden, will be the judge for this competition. I have a funny feeling she'll be nice to you. I think so. Yes, I think so, too. Go ahead. Go <laughs> go for it. So now, Debbie, our job is to not talk about butterfly gardening for the next 10 or 15 minutes. So let's go back <laughs> Let's go back to our weed list here yes. and uh, talk about those most vexatious weeds that are affecting uh, our listeners uh, the most or the readers of the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. We talked about uh, nutgrass, nutsedge, field bindweed, the other top five, spotted spurge, Liquid amber and Bermuda grass. Do you have a favorite in there you want to talk about? <laughs> I was surprised that liquid amber was on there. Yeah, I was too. I mean, I mentioned that, and maybe that influences some people's answer because I'm having a problem with that now, but that's what happens when you take out 14 liquid amber trees Ooh. is that you get all sorts of sprouts coming up. But again, my hoe is my best friend, yes. and the way to control it is just chop it as low as you can get with the, with the hoe. And eventually, it'll stop. But that happens with a lot of, of ornamental trees. Right, yes. You know, like we had a Chinese tallow tree that is still Ooh. sending them up. Yeah. And, oh, boy, that was that was a bad tree. There yeah. are uh, herbicides you can use. I think their effectiveness isn't that great. I still get a much more satisfaction of chopping it mm-hmm. <laughs> just because yeah. it's, it's fun. And uh, I, I, in studying this, I went back and I found a study from 1951 where they actually studied liquid amber sprouts. And they ascertained in this study that you have a better chance of controlling sprouting 
based on the time you remove the tree, that if you remove the tree when it's actively growing in spring or early summer, it doesn't produce as many sprouts in the following years. However, if you wait until the dormant season, January, February, and take the tree out then, it sends out more sprouts. Because the tree is trying to, to re- regenerate Regenerate. Itself. Itself. Yeah. Yes. And so the roots that remain, I mean, most people, when they take out a tree, they grind the stump. Well, that's fine and dandy. But anybody who's ever owned a liquid amber tree knows that those roots, and they're not too far from the surface, go everywhere. Yes. And those roots will keep producing uh, sprouts until they give up the ghost. I mean, you can dig out the roots, have fun, uh, or just go after those sprouts as they pop up. And that's basically the best control I know of for uh, the liquid amber sprouts. But, uh, yeah, they, they do keep coming back. Well, the, the roots will eventually give up the ghost because they won't be getting any new energy if you keep cutting down the sprouts. Uh, yeah. So there, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. Yes, it just takes. You just have to be diligent about going out it's there. It's much better than nutsets. Yeah, <laughs> I'd rather have a liquid amber problem than a nutsets. So problem. I found this one page where somebody was ranting about. Uh, actually, this guy was defending. Uh, now, liquid amber is also known as the sweet gum tree, yeah. and he points out the anti-sweet gum movement appears to have reached a new stage in the very town that turned to the sweet gum as it grieved the loss of its beloved elms. In 2012, Springfield, Illinois, launched a sweet gum eradication campaign offering to remove the tree from the tree lawns of residents and replace them with a variety deemed more suitable for a city-subsidized cost of just $250. Uh, Because as the sweet gums, anybody who's owned a sweet gum will tell you, and as as many of the people in Springfield said, it creates a death-defying obstacle course for distracted walkers, runners, and and everyone in between by those spiky little balls it Mm -hmm. drops. And it says, and while a few of Springfield's residents have spoken uh, up for the nut thatches, uh, finches, and chickadees, the bulk of the criticism appears to be coming from residents who believe that the city is not removing these menaces fast enough. (laughs) And it it says, very quickly after announcing the program, Springfield had received requests to remove 338 sweet gums. And uh, I guess all those bird defenders are just going to have to be patient. So basically, uh, take them out by hand. Well, that's another situation. We were talking about what makes a weed, because a a liquid amber tree is a very desirable tree. It's beautiful, you know, gold foliage in the fall is how it got got its nickname. And it's a food source for wildlife and has a lot of positive attributes. But it can also become a thug. All right, now let's talk about a lawn you grew up with in Southern California. Bermuda. Bermuda grass, which can be a weed if you don't want it. Yes. Well, the thing, you know, how did Bermuda get to California? Well, it came to California because it was a fast-growing, low-water lawn. Now, I had heard it came uh, on the, in the hooves of cattle that were moved out west and on wagon trains, too. That could be, yeah. 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 So, uh, but it's, you know, it, it makes a, a dense green mat uh, with roots that go down 20 feet, <laughs> you know, which is why it's so drought-tolerant and so yeah. tough. It's a triple threat. It produces seeds. It has runners, rhizomes, and it has underground uh, roots that can re-sprout stolons. Mm-hmm, yeah. A, a one inch of, of Bermuda rhizome will grow a whole new plant. So it, even having just a little bit left in the soil, it will mm-hmm. keep going. Now, I, I was able to control it. I took out, what was that, 1,200 square feet of lawn area when we lived in Harold, and it was a Bermuda grass lawn because back when I planted my first lawn out there back in 1989, well, Bermuda was still popular, and it's fast-growing. Boy, was that a mistake. 
uh, and it finally took off years later when I was trying to control it. But I found the way to control it, and I talked about it earlier, is soil solarization, putting down that clear plastic for four to six weeks during the hot summer months. And in that area, by the time we had left Harold, not a single sprout of Bermuda grass had appeared in, or if it did, I pulled it out really quickly, uh, in the five or six years between 2012 and 2016. Mm-hmm. So it, it soil solarization does go a long way to helping control Bermuda grass. The key, though, is don't mess with the soil when you're done soil solarization. Don't rototill the soil. Don't dig too deeply because you're going to bring up some of those stolons and rhizomes and uh, it'll start all over again. But adding compost and mulch, too, denying it light, can help control Bermuda grass. So that does work that way. Now, what does that leave us with? Spotted spurge. Spotted spurge. Is that the last one on the list yeah. here? Yeah. I hate spurge. It, uh, it, it's You know, it, it wrecks so many concrete things. <laughs> it gets in the driveway and in the sidewalk and just makes little cracks into wider cracks. Yeah, exactly. I remember one of those that you were uh, talking earlier about uh, one of the worst jobs you ever had as a kid was controlling oxalis. Yeah. And one of the worst jobs I had was a neighbor had all these rocks in the front yard. It was a rock garden in the front yard, but it was filled with spurge. And I got paid a quarter an hour to go out there and pull the spurge while kneeling on rocks. (laughs) It's like, no, (laughs) no. But uh, there are a lot of controls. There are chemical controls for spurge. And uh, it, it it's not easy, and you do. I, I still think this is one of those you have to dig out for a best control, uh, because it it and it. There are quite a few spurge varieties, and if you visit the spotted spurge and other spurges page at the UCIPM site, you can ID the pictures for the type of spurge that you may have in your yard, and and do the best control method. Uh, Basically, it talks about constantly monitor infested areas so you can mechanically till or hand-pull new plants before they produce seed. Take care as you weed, since plants that you hand-pull often break at the stem, leaving the root and several buds or a single stem from which regrowth is possible. Oh, by the way, wear gloves when you hand-pull since the sap can be a skin irritant. Yes. Mowing is an ineffective method of control since most species grow close to the ground. That's so encouraging. But it does talk about, too that uh, soil solarization does work on spurge. Yes. So, that, again, another great idea for this time of year, June, July, and August, putting down that clear plastic for four weeks to uh, control and raise the t- uh, soil temperature in order to kill off that spurge. Well, the thing about spurge, too, is it mostly reproduces by seed. So if you can get it before that, the little flowers have a chance to make seed, then you're going to help yourself a lot. So if you can just get it out as soon as you can, yeah. that helps. Diligence. But that's the problem with gardening, and we all are subject to going out to the garden to do one thing. We end up doing 10 other things and never do the original thing we went out there to do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> as we're all very aware of. There's so many projects going on at the same time. All right, we have a couple of open lines. Well, good. Name a plant that attracts butterflies. 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Call now with your answers. The Garden Grappler, it's going on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE.
You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, we have five people lined up. Five people who say they can name a plant that attracts butterflies. Debbie Arrington is here, the official judge and jury for today's competition. And first up, it is Cindy in Napa. Hi, Cindy. Hi. Hi there. So, Cindy, go ahead and give us a plant. That, okay, I'm going to guess blue delphinium. Blue delphinium. Wow. Hmm. Why would you guess that? Or do you know that? I, planted, I, I, I don't know. Because I planted it a lot. I was going to say butterfly bush, but oh, I didn't know stop if that it. was just, the real name just, for it. Just stop it. Plant. Quit giving away more answers than you need to, Cindy. <laughs> well, def, definitely uh, the second one. The Debbie oh, would be okay. Oh, butterfly bush. Okay, yeah. we'll go with that simple answer. I'd, I'd, I'd go with butterfly bush. Well, the thing about blue delphiniums is that they're blooming at a time period when the butterflies are not that active. Yeah, oh, now that's true, huh? But I do see a lot of butterfly around my delphinium, which is also mixed with larkspur, so I don't oh, know if it's maybe it's Cindy, quit giving away answers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's such a, I love this topic. <laughs> All right, well, butterfly bushes, the buddleias, a good answer there, so I'll be sending you from our Water Our World people information on how to control ants and how to control weeds. So that's coming your way. Ooh. Okay, thank you. All right, Cindy, thanks for calling. Next up, where are we going? Let's go to Fair Oaks and talk with Rita here on the Garden Grappler. So, Rita, I bet you have a good uh, butterfly plant you want to talk about? Uh, don't, don't listen to the radio because you're going to hear me seven seconds before or later, and it's just going to drive you nuts. All right, Rita, Rita, pick up the phone, Rita. I'm going to put Rita back on hold. All right. Where do we go from here? Maybe she just wanted to drive me nuts hearing and, myself. And delphiniums do attract butterflies. Okay, so delphiniums yeah, yeah, was so a good delphinium answer. Delphinium was a good answer. All right. Where do we go? Let's go to San Diego, talk with Karen. Karen, go ahead. Give us a uh, butterfly plant. Hey, Fred. Yeah, how about rosemary? We've got one called blue spires, rosemary. Deb, hummingbirds Deb. and butterflies. Debbie. Yes, I would say yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, because I know my, my blue spires, rosemary, does attract... Uh, like little skipper butterflies. Yeah. Those little ones. Yeah. The ones that are active and in the wintertime. Yes. And hummingbirds, too, yeah. yeah. And bees. Uh, yeah. Yes. The bees uh, love yeah. rosemary. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Good answer. Okay. Yes. We'll, we'll be sending you that information on controlling ants and controlling weeds. Yay. Thank Yay. you. <laughs> Whoopee. <laughs> Paper. Thanks, Karen. All right. All right. Caller number four. It is Judy here in Sacramento. Hi, Judy. Hi, Farmer Fred. Hi there. How are you? I'm here, and you're there. That's right, and it's hotter than Hades out here. Yeah, what is the current temperature? Good question. Let's see. It's about 91 or so. Um, wow. According to my thermometer, it says 65, but then this ther- thermometer hasn't been updated in four hours. So, <laughs> so let, let's go to the National Weather Service and see what it is right now. Sacramento International Airport, 88 degrees. Marysville, 90. Uh, Vacaville, 90. Brooks, 93, Lincoln, 92, Stockton, 91, and it's only 1124. That's right. Yeah. All right. So go ahead. Name us a a viable butterfly plant. Lantana? Yes. Yes, Lantana that's got that flat flower, and they love it, and it's just loaded. And it's loaded with flowers and nectar this time of year. It's a long bloomer, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, it blooms. Gosh, it blooms. Spring, summer, fall? Easily easily nine months. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's a good one. 
There you go, uh, uh, Judy. I'll be sending you that information on controlling ants and controlling weeds. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, Rita went away. Uh, no, wait a minute. Oh, <laughs> Terry's giving me sign language there in the control room. Like He's waving his hands and pointing at his eyes, meaning, help, I got sunscreen in my eyes or something like that. We'll wait for Rita. Okay, Rita's back. All right. Hi, Rita. Hi. Oh, you are there. So, Rita, who's caller number two, Rita, go ahead. Give us a, a butterfly plant. Asclepius. Okay, that's milkweed. good. Yeah, milkweed yeah. or asclepia or however yeah. you want to say that. Milkweed's easier. <laughs> yes, milkweed's a heck of a lot easier. And, and milkweed is one of those plants that uh, you have to be willing to uh, tolerate some caterpillar damage yes. to. Yes, well, mil- milkweed... In particular, showy milkweed is a favorite plant for monarch butterflies. Right. And they gravitate towards it uh, like an In-N-Out burger place. With, you know, it's like, it's their favorite diner. Um, but the thing is, it's a diner. They're, they love to eat it. Yeah. You know, the caterpillars that they'll, they'll uh, lay the eggs there and they'll hatch in the caterpillars. Um, but they also like the flowers as a nectar source. So it is a wonderful, wonderful butterfly plant. All right. Good answer there, Rita. So I'll be sending you that information on controlling ants and controlling weeds. Thank you very much. I enjoy your program. Me too. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. And that takes us to caller number five. Really? Really? Good morning. Really? I was out in my garden when you said that you needed more callers. Ted in Granite Bay, who lived in Granite Bay before it was Granite Bay. That's right. Loomis. It was Loomis. And uh, Ted, go ahead, give us a but. You are caller five. I am okay. Well, I'm going to give you the one that is my favorite summer uh, is zinnia. Yes, okay, yeah, zinnias. Definitely. Yes, yeah. it's an annual, zinnia. and zinnias yeah. have that flat flower that yes. uh, butterflies find attractive. And uh, the key, and, and it's, a one, it's a wonderful cut flower, and they go all summer. Exactly, and you can bring those in, and all variety of colors. And Debbie pointed this out earlier, and I think it bears repeating, especially when it comes to zinnias, is you want to choose the older non-hybrid varieties yes. because they have more nectar, nectar yes. than a lot of the hybrids. Because sometimes in hybridization, plant breeders are going after either length of bloom or size of bloom or timing color. of bloom or the color, and something has to give, and usually what gives might be the nectar. Yes. So look for those heirloom varieties of zinnias to attract uh, all those butterflies. Okay, I didn't, didn't know that. Well, I tried it. That's why I'm here, Fred. Uh, whatever your name is, Ted. Okay. What's yeah. new? Did you you got the fence finished, Ted? That's a good thing. Yes, the fence is done, and now I, I was the one that put in pond weeds. It's terrible. Somebody that has a pond with the azolla and the filamentous duckweed. That's uh, mm-hmm. your constant. It's it's just terrible trying to keep your ponds clean but you deliberately put it in there no no oh, okay but it is but you know you can buy it online that's the crazy part and i'm trying to kill it <laughs> well yeah well one man's meat is another man's something that's right um that's right but what do we have what was the grand price i have for you ted the homeowner's guide to water smart landscaping all right. So now we'll have to do our front yard. Yes. <laughs> Seriously, it's been five years now, and I've been trying to get my wife going. So maybe that's our next project. Uh, yeah, as if you don't. What do you have? Five acres there? Ten acres. Ten acres. I'm sorry. Okay, ten acres. Yeah. Mostly oaks and rocks. 
Yeah, well, uh, an acre of a pond. Yeah, and an acre of a pond. You got rattlesnakes. Two big, two big gardens. By the way, the tomatoes this year, all mine are early girls. And I was just out there when I came running in. They're as tall as I am. So much fruit. This is going to be the best year for tomatoes. It's going to be a good year. And and not to brag, but uh, we had tomatoes from the garden for dinner last night. Oh my god! Oh, they're cherry tomatoes. They're cherry. Yeah. That, wow! Yes. Congratulations! <laughs> yes, as Dan Vieira would say, cherry tomatoes don't count in this race <laughs> yeah. for the earliest tomato. But yeah, I mean, I'll take them. There were sun golds; they were good. Yep, I actually I ate my first one yesterday too. I picked it off the bottom. All right, it was good indeed, and it's only June third. Great for us, right? All right, Ted, congratulations. Okay, thank you very much. I'll look forward to that book. All right, thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. And Debbie Arrington, thanks for dropping by. Oh, it was my pleasure. And again, uh, look for the Debbie Arrington Facebook page, which is called Sacramento Digs Gardening. Sacramento Digs Gardening, which can link you to her Blogspot page, her blog page. Which Sac is a, Digs Gardening. Sac Digs Gardening. At Blogspot. And soon coming, sackdigsgardening.com. Yes. All right. Look forward to keeping garden local. That's that's our goal. Yes, exactly. Stuff that we can relate to. That's all all that matters. That's apparently going to be your job and my job from here on out. Well, you know, it's somebody has to do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it might as well be us. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, we're a community of gardeners, and that's what we want to keep intact. Right. And more power to us. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Debbie. Appreciate it. All right. When we come back, uh, talking about growing succulents. There's a lot of succulents out there. We have some tips for you from the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. When we come back to get growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. We're at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. It's a open garden day on a Saturday in May, and Annie McDonald is here, master gardener, and Andy has set herself up a little table here in the watery vision landscape with succulents, and they are containerized succulents. Talk about what you have on this table here. Well, I have a variety. I have some cactus. I have some, um, just what we would call succulents. Okay. <laughs> I have an agave. I have some aloes. They're all succulents, but, okay, for example, a cactus is a succulent, but not all succulents are cactus. Right. Okay. And what's nice is some are in bloom and they're yet in small containers. So this is perfect for somebody with a sunny window. This is perfect for that. And actually, a lot of these prefer um, afternoon shade or a little protection in the afternoon. So they're they're ideal for a lot of people's um, patios. All right. And you have some interesting containers here. Now, you've got one that looks to be an old standard coffee percolator. Yes. And what's great about that is that you plant in the top of the percolator. The one with all the holes in it. All the holes, right. And you, you, you put your potting soil in there, you put your plants in there, and it's got wonderful drainage because the thing that succulents do not want is to have wet feet. So this this is a good way to make sure that the water drains through. Now, one plant you have is in bloom. What is this plant that's in bloom? This is Portolaca, and Portolaca is um, it's usually used as a ground cover. Uh, you might think of it as a, like an ice plant. Mm-hmm. That's what we used to call them, and uh, it's just a pretty uh, filler in a container. And suitable for indoors? Um, it no, it really does need some light. It needs to be outdoors. These I wouldn't put indoors. I would put them in a sunny area. Well, sunny, they like morning sun, but 
most of these want, like I said, some afternoon protection in our climate. We were talking earlier about aloes and things like that where maybe somebody will give you a cutting. In fact, you have a demonstration coming up here where you're going to demonstrate what you can do if somebody digs up a a succulent like this uh, in front of us. Tell us what this is and what you're going to do with it. Okay, this right here is is an agave. And if you plant it in the ground, it's going to get gigantic and huge. Okay, but I'm going to keep it in a pot. And I have them in pots and that somehow keeps them smaller. I find them to be a very dramatic plant. Mm -hmm. And I found that they do really well um, they do really well in a in a container uh, garden. Um, we've also got um, some aloes that that also will do very well in a container garden. They I have found that they tend to remain a little bit smaller. Well, yeah, a lot smaller. I was going to say one of the agaves <laughs> is also known as a century plant that can send up a, a stalk the size of a house. That's what this is. <laughs> this is one of those. But I I have one. I've had it in a pot for um, a year and a half. And it's barely grown, and yet it's it's thrive. It seems to be thriving. It looks really good. It looks like how, how I wanted it to look. If I had put it in the ground, it would be getting a lot bigger. So this sample agave that you dug up, now you've included the roots on it. The entire plant itself is maybe four to six inches tall. What special care does it need? Does it need to dry out first before you plant it, or what? No, I wouldn't do. I wouldn't dry it out. But um, I would for this one. This one I just yanked out of the ground because I want to show the difference between an agave and an aloe. Okay, so the other one that I have that I'm actually going to plant has been in a pot, in a container from the get-go. But this I wanted to uh, just use as an example plant. Well, now you've got to tell us. (laughs) What is the difference between an agave and an aloe? Now, what you have in your hand is an agave. This is an agave. It's a century plant. The agave is from the New World... They are from uh, from like the southwest. They're po- they're common and into Mexico, and in fact, this is what they make tequila out of. The agaves are used for fiber. Uh, they use uh, they can make rope. They can make uh, fabric. They can make paper with that. Okay, and it's um, and as, as you can see here, the the roots are very shallow. Okay, a lot of succulents have very shallow roots because it's a fleshy plant and it stores its moisture in its leaves. Okay, so this is from the New World. The aloes are from Africa and they are, or, or the Mediterranean area traditionally. And um, they are different in that you really cannot eat them. Okay, they are used medicinally, but they are not edible plants. And a difference here is these are gooey. The aloes are, yeah. are gooey. They're gooey. Okay, like, <laughs> I mean, people think of aloe vera and you rub it on a burn. And that's what this is, okay. right. The agave, you see, it does not do that. Okay, so They're if you different. make a cross-section mm-hmm. of the agave, uh, it, it's not going to ooze, whereas the aloe, if you it's snip it, it, it's going to be kind of gelatinous. Right. Okay, so also, if we look over here... The, the leaf is coming out from the center of the agave and it's wrapped around, all the leaves are wrapped together and they, they unwrap as they come out. And when, as they unwrap, you can actually see the imprint of the leaf that it was pressed up against. Okay, so it comes out from the center. The aloes also grow out from the center, but not in that way. They grow out individually. They're not wrapped together. Mm, okay. okay, so that, so look for the curled leaf on the agave and you'll see a new leaf coming out right. from that middle curl. From the very center. And see here they radiate out. On the aloe. On the aloe. The aloes radiate out but they don't, they're not grouped together. 
aloes usually bloom annually. Agaves will bloom once in their lifetime, and then the host plant will die. Well, now you've created a conundrum for people. If they like the plant, how do they save it? What they do is it has it has children. We call them pups, all clustered around it. And so those pups will survive. The, the plant in the center is going to die out, but the pups will, will live. And how do you save the pup? They grow on their own. You can dig them up. That one's a pup right there. You, you can dig it. You can very brutally rip it away from its parent and put it into potting soil and it will grow. Oh, just like sending kids off to school. Exactly. Okay. All right. <laughs> so we've learned a lot today about succulents. A, they grow well in containers. Many can do well indoors in a sunny window. And we, we've learned the difference between aloe and agave. We've learned a lot today from Andy McDonald, Sacramento County Master Gardener, here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, which is open monthly for various demonstrations. And you can visit the orchard, the water-efficient landscape garden, the composting area, the vegetable gardens, the, the vineyards, and so much more. And of course, come on out the first Saturday of August. It's harvest day when the whole place is open and anybody who knows anything about gardening is here to answer your questions. It's an amazing event. It's uh, Sacramento's premier garden event. Harvest Day, Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, first Saturday of August every year. Andy McDonald, thanks for your time and telling us about succulents. Well, you're welcome. My pleasure. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, glad to have you along uh, for the final segment here of Get Growing on this June the 3rd. Don't forget, if you missed any portion of today's program, it is available as a podcast. You can download it from kste.com. The, uh, you, can, uh, you can stream it. Let me get this right. You can stream it from kste.com or the iHeartRadio app. You can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, including iTunes. So there you go. All right. And you can find links to them, by the way, at FarmerFred.com. Back to the phones we go. Chris and Pilot Hill, thanks for hanging in there. Appreciate it. Hi, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Hey, I got a couple questions. I listen to you all the time. I never call the radio station. I live up here, you know, with the red dirt. Yes, you do. Red red dirt and rocks, and I got a beautiful lawn going, but I'm having problems with the weeds in it. The uh, You have little f- yellow flowers, the clover. What should I use to get rid of that? All right. It's, not so, it's probably not clover. It's probably something along the lines of uh, what's called creeping wood sorrel or Bermuda buttercup, and it's an oxalis. And that is, uh, it, and it kind of spreads low along the ground, doesn't it? Correct. Yeah, and it, it it's tough to get rid of. It's a, uh, it, there are basically there are two ways for managing it, and for, neither of them are easy. And basically, you need to remove the established plants and then control any germinating seeds. And the basic, the best way uh, is the uh, good old fashioned hand weeding, and or using a hoe and weeding tools. And then you could try using a post-emergent herbicide that is registered for use on lawns. Uh, when you have this uh, creeping wood sorrel or Bermuda buttercup in a lawn situation, it gets a little bit more tricky. Um, and, and you can't just mow it or fertilize it out of existence or irrigate it out of existence. Uh, the more vigorous the turf grass is, the more vigorous uh, this weed is. 
and uh, you know, and you can't mow it because it it grows so low to the ground. So that's where a a post emergent herbicide may come in handy in a lawn situation of getting rid of it that you can use on a lawn. And so basically, among the regi- I, I don't like using this stuff, frankly, but it, you got to be very careful with what you then do with the lawn clippings. If you've applied, look for the active ingredient 2,4-D or dicamba, dicamba or triclopyr. Uh, those are three of the more common ingredients you're going to find in a post-emergent uh, weed control for uses in turf. And some common names to look for is weed whacker, lawn weed killer, clover and oxalis killer for lawn, spurge power. Uh, those are some of the common names. And um, of those, probably the only one not available for home use is called Spotlight, which is only for uh, those with uh, active pesticide applicator licenses. But uh, products like uh, Speed Zone, Weed Whacker, uh, Trimec, uh, the clover and oxalis killer for lawns, turflon esters, spurge power, those are registered for use on lawns. Just be sure to read and follow all label directions. And know the type of lawn you have because some of these products can be harmful to warm season grasses. So if you know the variety of lawn you have, then you can better pick a product. So basically, take your magnifying glass with you when you go to the the nursery or the home store to find uh, one of these products and see if your lawn is okay with that product. I will do that. And I have one more question for you. Okay. I used to live on the river where I could grow a garden. It was no problem. You throw a seed on the ground and throw water on it. I built a huge raised garden up here this year. I need a fertilizer to put in there. I've been putting in uh, a ground-up fish mulch I get, Okay. which has worked real good because my plants are huge right now. But I need a good fertilizer to put on just to fertilize the top of the gardens. Okay. Are you looking for a liquid fertilizer or a granular fertilizer? Either one. uh, Granular. Okay. Uh, There's a lot of good organic granular fertilizers out there made by a wide variety of manufacturers. And what you're looking for, you know, those three numbers you see on any fertilizer container, uh, it might say 521 or 101010. Basically, what you're looking for on those three numbers, which represent the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium uh, in that uh, bag of granular fertilizer, you want to keep the nitrogen level, the first number, at 10 or below. That way, first of all, you know it's organic. And the reason why organic fertilizers are better for a vegetable garden is because they're longer lasting. They don't break down as quickly. And so you only have to apply them, in, in some instances, maybe only twice per season or once per month, as opposed to a lot of uh, quick-release fertilizers where you may have to apply it every two weeks or so. So look for uh, organic fertilizers uh, with low numbers, maybe a triple eight or a 521, uh, 5-1-1, something along those lines. It's always a good idea, and there are soil test kits available where you can test uh, for the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium to see what you need. You may not need a lot of phosphorus or potassium. You probably need nitrogen because nitrogen gets leached out of the soil the quickest. And uh, something, even a lawn fertilizer, an organic lawn fertilizer, sometimes 
is registered for use on in a vegetable garden as well, and you can choose one of those. I my standby uh, garden fertilizers in my raised beds: fish emulsion and kelp meal. And there's a lot of products that you mix with water and uh, apply that usually on a every other week or even every three week uh, application rate. Very good. Thank you so much. You helped me out a lot. I hope I'll so. We'll have fun. Back. I'll give you a call back in a month and let you know how it works. Good deal. Well, give it longer than that because it is slow <laughs> acting, okay? All right. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, good fertilizers on the market. The key, the key is don't love your plants to death with too much fertilizer because too much nitrogen can be just as bad as not enough nitrogen because too much nitrogen can cause a lot of weak green growth at the expense of uh, fruits and vegetables. And that weak green growth is very attractive to the bad bugs, to the uh, sucking insects. So as, as we're fond of saying on this program, read and follow all label directions, especially the application rates. Lynn and Alta has called back. Thanks for calling back. Appreciate it. Hi. Yeah, I had a regret I had to feed. I understand. Um, <laughs> I, tell, I tell friends, okay, I don't know if you want to say this, but um, it's the difference between a good cup of coffee and crack. Yes, <laughs> is uh, is the fertilizer. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's you got to be careful. <laughs> anyway, my question, and I also didn't want to spoil the grappler, was so I I was able to find a milkweed, um, but it I've never seen this, and I've only seen it in succulents. Anyway, the. The planter has rocks on it. On it. I, I mean, I mean, in the in the pot. Mixed in or resting on the bottom. Uh, on top, on top of the soil. Okay, and and you you purchased it this way. I did, yeah, from a commercial commercial nursery. I I don't do I plant it with those rocks on it. Is that just does it have a fibrous root system that would come up and that's it suppressing it? Uh, are these really rocks, or is it perlite? No, they're rocks. They are rocks. They're like half-inch rocks. Was it all? <laughs> really? Was it to keep the container from blowing over in a heavy windstorm? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That's weird. Um, no, there's no reason. Uh, rocks provide very little organic nourishment to plants. Well, and if you, yeah. I mean, a mulch. An organic mulch, and even though rocks are "quote unquote" organic, there's a lot better choices out there. Be it uh, bark, uh, chipped tree clippings, um, even even mulch, a fine mulch you could buy at any nursery uh, would be better than rocks. Rocks, I, you know, they, I think, in a permanent establishment where you're never going to change anything. Or kill weeds, <laughs> be fine. But it, there's just too many things that can go wrong, especially if you're trying to weed whack in rocks. And maybe, maybe it was like a visual aesthetic thing. Yeah, it could be. Oh, look, this will look pretty. Yeah, well, that that's it. I mean, if you want to go pretty and with something a little healthier for the soil, you know, you can choose bark that's been colored. I know that's weird. Yeah, it, it was in the pot. Like I've seen cactus sometimes like that. But yeah. Well, rock can be used as a mulch. I, I, my, especially, but in a container, I'd be very worried about using rock as a mulch because of the heat buildup. As if the sun hitting the container isn't bad enough. If you got rocks on there absorbing the heat, that warms up the soil a little too much. 
uh, well, in, in the summertime. Yeah, I'll put it in your rock garden. Yeah. And then I wanted to let you know, you mentioned a few weeks ago looking for your favorite red onion, a Stockton. Oh, the Stockton red, red yeah. Found at Isley's Nursery. Isley's had Auburn. it. Okay, all right. Well, I'm going to have to head up there next fall and get exactly. some. Exactly. I, I actually bought them two weeks ago. I don't know if they still have them, but... Ooh, anyway. that's that's kind of a weird season to be buying onions. E, e, they were starts. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah okay. generally around Maybe here. Leftovers. Yeah, the best time to plant onions around here is usually in the fall and let them uh, grow during the winter and the early spring because they tend to bolt as soon as the weather heats up. Okay. Very good. Well, thanks so much for your advice. I appreciate you always. All right, Lynn. Thanks for calling. Good to hear from you. Sure. Thank All right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. So where do we go from here? Boom, boom. I heard that. Oh, we don't have time for anything more? Okay. I'll just wrap it up by saying, hey, I hope you can stay tuned for the KSTE Farm Hour. That's coming up next. Uh, I haven't checked the news this morning. Has Trump uh, backed off on the tariffs against Canada and Mexico and Europe yet? He hasn't? Okay, then this story still rings true. And we talk about those mandated tariffs and the havoc it's going to play with California farmers. And uh, the exports of California's farmers and ranchers may be affected if those tariffs go into effect. Is the food from a farmer's market healthier for you? Hmm. Well, that's a study the USDA has been looking at. We get into that. Also, the latest threat to California poultry is virulent Newcastle disease. We have an extended report. Uh, you may have heard a bit of a report last week on this program on here on the Get Growing Show about Newcastle disease. We have an extended version of that interview with a poultry health inspector about virulent Newcastle disease and what it's doing among the exhibition chicken flocks in Southern California and the steps you can take to protect your own flock from virulent Newcastle disease. Thanks for listening. I appreciate your support all these years. And uh, we'll do it again next week. Quentin Young from Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery will be joining us. And uh, we're going to be, I think we're going to be talking about hot pepper plants, among other things. So I hope you can join us for that. And uh, don't forget, podcasts available for this show, the KFBK Garden Show, as well as the KSDE Farm Hour. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.